humans, despite how much some of us hate to admit it, are emotional creatures. We get excited at the prospect of a new, fun experience, we are happy when we get good news, and we get sad when we feel rejected or things aren't going our way. But have you ever felt stuck being sad, sometimes without a cause you can point to? Maybe you thought that it could be more than sadness, something else, depression. One in six people will experience depression in their lifetime. But what is depression? It's not until recently that we as a society have become more open even talking about depression, let alone accepting it as a legitimate mental syndrome. In today's episode, we talked to Dr. John Albert, Chair of Psychiatry at Einstein, whose expertise helped us answer questions such as what is depression? Are there different types of depression? What symptoms qualify to make any one diagnosis? And can it be managed without medication? To get a better idea of what it's like to live with depression and anxiety, we also talked to a friend who identified herself as Anonymous Annie to gain insight into her experiences of going to doctors and managing her symptoms. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, New York, who explore your brain's phenomena one scientific adventure at a time. Today, we are addressing the topic of depression and anxiety. It's a topic we wanted to discuss early on because it's so relevant to the general public. Depression and anxiety have been on the rise in recent years, and for that, it's actually been talked about a lot more on social media and amongst peer groups, removing some of the stigma. But there's a lot that we don't know about these disorders. We do now know that people with depression cannot just think happy thoughts and make their symptoms go away, which was commonly thought stigma in many societies. It affects not only the person suffering from it, but also the people around them, including their friends and family. A lot of awareness has occurred in recent years due to many celebrities suffering from depression ultimately ending their own lives. Something is going on in the brain that is not so easy to fix and needs to be addressed. Luckily, there's a lot of research going on that has led to a lot of discoveries and treatment options, and Dr. John Albert will take us through the different types of depression and treatment options offered to patients after diagnosis. My name is Jonathan Alpert. I'm Chief of Psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center, and I'm Professor of Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Pediatrics. My primary area of research has been on what's sometimes called treatment-resistant depression. It's sort of a complicated form of depression that doesn't respond to usual treatments. And so we're always interested in developing new treatments that might be able to reach out to people who haven't been able to get relief Um, from suffering of depression of various causes from the usual treatments that we have available. First to note that when we use the term depression, because it's also a common word, um, sometimes we're just referring to sadness, and Mm -hmm. any of us could feel depressed on a given day, or we got back exam scores we were disappointed with, or we had a breakup with a relationship, and for a short time, uh, we're down in the dumps, and that doesn't necessarily mean clinical depression, but we may we may feel sad, and we may use the word depression. When we think about depression as a clinical diagnosis, we think of three main categories of depression. Um, one um, would be called major depressive disorder, and that's usually what we mean by clinical depression, and I, I can talk a little bit more about major depressive disorder. Another is bipolar depression, and that's very different and sometimes called manic depressive illness. It looks very much like clinical depression when somebody is depressed, but a person with manic depressive illness or bipolar depression will also have periods of time um, that are distinctly different. Those are periods of time 
when instead of their mood being down, their mood is up. They might feel euphoric. Um, instead of low energy and fatigue, which we often see in depression, somebody has extra energy to burn. Um, they actually can get by with two or three hours of sleep and feel extra energetic. They'll be cleaning the basement, painting, uh, writing emails, um, calling people at two in the morning. Instead of low self-esteem, which we often see in regular depression, um, during these high periods, sometimes called manic periods, um, somebody has grandiose ideas. They might feel that they have special powers or talents. Um, also during those manic periods, people are often very impulsive. They might spend a great deal of money, uh, be promiscuous, do other things which might be dangerous um, that are uncharacteristic um, for them. And they might be intensely irritable. So that's bipolar depression. It's treated very differently and we think of it very differently um, than other forms of clinical depression, which are called unipolar depression. And then there's a third category that sometimes is called adjustment disorder. And what adjustment disorder uh, means is that in reaction to a specific life stress, moving to a new city where we have no friends and so on, we've sunk into a bit of a depression. Um, and once we get settled, that begins to get, um, get better. If somebody has full-blown major depression, they, they meet all the symptoms that we, we look at to diagnose major depression, we call it major depression. But if they have this low-grade, more mild depression, and it's in reaction to a very specific outside stress, we call it adjustment disorder. Um, so there are those three different forms of, um, of depression. We're not absolutely certain how they differ biologically. Um, most of the work that's been done has been on unipolar major depressive disorder, the main form of depression. And about one out of seven people um, have uh, that form of depression sometime in their life. So about 15% of people experience unipolar major depressive disorder sometime in their life. Like, is there a certain age when people experience this depression? Yes, indeed. So the most common ages of onset are adolescence to young adulthood. Okay. Anyone who has a single episode of depression, and, and again, that might have been when they were 16 or 20, um, has about a 50% chance of having at least one more episode sometime in their life. So it's not unusual for us to see somebody who might be 40 or 50 or mm -hmm. 60 but often when we get a very careful history, even if they were never treated for depression before, when we get a, a careful history, often they'll say, you know, in senior year in, in high school or college, I went through a very similar period of, of time. I never got treatment, but it was very similar to what I'm going through now. So the most common age of onset um, is late adolescence or early adulthood. So late adolescence to early adulthood. Interestingly, this actually rung true for you too, Annie, right? When did it start for you? I would say that I started to struggle with these things right around the time uh, where I started to go to college, which was around 2004, but that might have also been indicative of, you know, a 17 or 18-year-old girl. It's never a great time in anyone's life, or probably in most people's lives. But since then, you know, there have been ups and downs. I would say lately I'm doing very well, but that comes from a mix of a lot of hard work, experience, and just realizing when, that, when some things are not truly the end of the world. So it sounds like there's a lot of different causes, possible different causes for depression. So when you're treating a patient, do you take all of these into account and then tailor their treatment to which might be the causes of them? So 
the testing we do has a lot to do with the clinical features mm -hmm. that we learn about when we meet with somebody. If we feel convinced um, that it's clinical depression or major depressive disorder, there are some standard first-line treatments that we think about. And those broadly go under the category of antidepressants or psychotherapy. And um, for most forms of depression, especially mild to moderate depression, psychotherapy and medications work equally well. So it often comes down to preference. You know, some people would prefer to start with therapy. Some people would prefer to start with medications. Um, for some people, it's not feasible to get one or the other. Um, maybe they've tried medications and they have a lot of side effects, or maybe psychotherapy isn't available in the area where they live. It's hard to find a therapist. Um, so there are various reasons that might sway us in one direction or the other um, in choosing medications or psychotherapy. But we usually start with one, one or the other or occasionally both as our first line agent. At this point, getting brain imaging tests or even blood tests is something we usually reserve for people whose symptoms don't fit under neatly under the category of depression well, we've already been treating them and things just aren't working and we want to make sure we're not missing something, uh, something else, some other explanation for their depression. It is common for people to be worried about grades, maybe feel a little shy about asking for directions or a family member is late for something and they're worried. At what point do you say that this is just human emotion? And at what point do you say, okay, this is a, a disorder? It's a major question uh, and a very important question in much of psychiatry um, that many of our um, disorders are related to symptoms that occur on a continuum in, in human life. And so it's similar to blood pressure or heart rate or body mass index that there's this continuum of values. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point we say, okay, now it's crossed the line and we're going to call it a disorder. And... So committees have met over, over, over many years and have looked at the data that exists from large community um, data sets and um, from uh, clinical research um, and have determined that if you have a certain number of symptoms and they go on for a certain uh, period of time and they're causing distress and functional impairment, that... Um, when all of those things are true, that you have a certain number of symptoms and the duration has been a certain amount um, and um, it's causing distress and functional impairment, that that group of people is much more likely to have a family history of the disorder, so like a family history of depression or generalized anxiety disorder, and much more likely to respond to the treatments that we have. Whereas if you look at people who just have a few of those symptoms for a short period of time and it's not causing distress or impairment, um, they're much less likely to have a family history and less, much likely to respond to treatment. So somewhat arbitrarily, but not completely arbitrarily, lines have been drawn where we say, okay, you know, if it's going on for two weeks and there are five out of nine symptoms and so on, we'll call it major depressive disorder. If it's less than that, we won't give it that, that name. When it comes to clinical treatment, what we actually do in the office, we're often guided um, also by common sense and by safety. And so we might see somebody who has all of the symptoms of major depressive disorder, and it has been for two weeks, and it is causing some impairment. 
but it was in the context of a major life event. They're in the middle of a divorce or they, you know, um, uh, they left uh, medical school or graduate school or so something pretty significant happened to them. Um, and they're not suicidal, they're safe, and they're willing to see us in a few weeks uh, just to check in on how they're doing. And maybe they're willing to exercise or do other healthy things and to stay away from alcohol and to get a good night's sleep. Um, that um, we might use our common sense and say, you know, technically on paper, they meet all the criteria for major depressive disorder, but it doesn't mean automatically we need to treat them with medications. On the other hand, we may see somebody who just, instead of five out of nine symptoms of depression, which is how we diagnose major depressive disorder, that there's specific nine symptoms and you have to have five of them and they need to be going on for two weeks. We might see somebody who has three or four of those symptoms, but they're, they're really doing poorly. Um, they're, you know, they're at risk of losing their job. Um, they're getting worse over time. And in the past, they have benefited from antidepressants. We're not going to say, well, we need to wait until you have all five out of nine symptoms. We're going to use our common clinical judgment and say, common sense and clinical judgment and say, maybe we should proceed with treatment, whether it's medications or psychotherapy or some other form of, uh, of, of treatment. So in a way, those are guidelines that we have, but there's definitely a continuum between normal behaviors and even behaviors that are positive, like being anxious for an exam is a positive thing. We should all... It, it motivates us. It, it helps us. Um, being anxious before we give a talk is a positive thing. It yeah, it's gives, a, sign, a sign of caring. Yeah. It's a sign of caring. Um, and so those are all positive. But sometimes they can be disabling. And, and you know, it's, it's often a judgment call uh, to see what is the impact it's actually having on this person. Uh, is it making this person disabled? Is it making this person less safe because of suicidality or other reasons? Um, that's, that's often the, uh, those are often the considerations in guiding treatment decisions. All right, so we know that there are guidelines for making a diagnosis for some, but we found out that for you, Andy, your doctors didn't make that call, right? So this actually turned out well for you. You don't have a formal diagnosis, is what you said. So you've just kind of mm -hmm. been dealing with this with online, and have you gone to a doctor formally or no? Yeah, I've gone to a doctor, and I don't know how much is actually in their power to officially diagnose someone, but mm -hmm. I've seen general... GP is what they would call them in England, and it's been a while since I've, General used, yeah. <laughs> so I've used the American healthcare system with success, so mm -hmm. I guess that would just be your primary or family doctor. You know, based on my symptoms that I told them about, they were like, yeah, you probably have depression or anxiety, depending on the symptoms that I was talking to them about, I suppose. And then I did see a psychiatrist for a while, and you know, he never really uh, slapped a diagnosis on me, and I think that was more helpful than anything because... Maybe personally, I would have felt like that put me in a box, and then I just have to figure out a way to get out of that box. But it was more about, you know, a lot of issues going on at once and how to manage all of those. So I've also been on medication for a long time, um, probably since middle of college or so. Uh, it was more to deal with depression in the beginning, so I made my way through the various SSRIs like uh, Prozac, Zoloft. I decided to try going off for a while. Um, but I kind of noticed, uh, it took me a little while, but it was more related to anxiety. Without that medication, um, I tend to focus a lot more on the negative feelings, and it's difficult for me to just put them aside mm -hmm. versus on it. I can see that you know these thoughts are swirling around my head, and the, uh, the medication doesn't kill those thoughts or make them go away, but it just helps me deal with them a little bit better. 
I think it helped me see that, you know, sometimes it's not just all in your head and it might be related to different uh, hormones or mm -hmm. chemicals floating around in your whole body. Um, those might have a bigger impact on you than you think. Have we kind of pegged down what makes people more resistant to certain treatments than others? It's a great question, and we, we don't know the answer. What we do know is that only about one out of three people who have clinical depression respond to the first antidepressant they're given or the first kind of psychotherapy that um, they participate in. And we don't know why um, it's only one out, of, one out of three. What we do know is that if we persevere, if we continue to use other antidepressants or other forms of treatment, most people get well. Most people are able to find a treatment. We're able to help them find a treatment um, that works for their depression. Um, there are many different theories for why um, not everyone responds to a given antidepressant. One has to do with the fact that depression is a broad syndrome, that is to say it's a whole set of different um, uh, symptoms, uh, feeling sad, losing interest, sleep differences, but we don't know whether, and, and we call that major depression or clinical depression, we don't know whether that's the same from one person to another. So if we think about fever and sore throat, we know there are all kinds of reasons why people have fever and sore throat. Sometimes it's a virus, just a cold. Sometimes it's strep throat. Uh, it, sometimes it's because somebody scratched their throat uh, because they swallowed something. Um, and for that reason, not everyone with a sore throat and fever responds to penicillin. If somebody has strep throat, they'll respond right away. If they don't, um, they won't respond to penicillin. It may be the same thing with depression, that there are different kinds of depression. We just don't know how to test for them um, because we're making the diagnosis of depression based on, uh, on common symptoms. Some people also feel that potentially we are over-medicated. Do you think that that is a risk? Right. It, it, it's a great question. So we have a lot of people in our society on um, psychiatric medications, and that includes antidepressants. It includes medications for attention deficit disorder like psychostimulants. Um, it includes medications for anxiety uh, like the so-called benzodiazepines. And so um, we have a large number of people on medications, and particularly young people, because um, when um, psychiatric disorders arise, uh, with the exception of dementia, most psychiatric disorders are conditions of younger people. And unlike most health conditions, like if you think about diabetes or high blood pressure, you're usually thinking about people in their 40s or 50s or 60s. When you think of psychiatric disorders like attention deficit disorder or panic disorder or depression, it's younger people. So if you look at college campuses and university health services, um, they've seen this large number of people coming in who you know, are either on or starting uh, prescription med medications. And I think as a society we need, and, and in, in medicine, we need to scrutinize that very carefully. I think that said, um, that there's much more under-treatment than over-treatment. That is to say, depression is highly prevalent and I think there are many more people who um, have not had access to appropriate treatment, either because of stigma that they, you know, they were held back from even seeking treatment, or because insurance is so difficult to navigate that they haven't figured out who will take their insurance and where can they find a, a provider who they can see, um, or because um, they mentioned briefly that they might be depressed, but the healthcare provider they spoke with didn't pick up on it and didn't offer treatment. Um, I think undertreatment is still much a much bigger problem than overtreatment. I think there may be a small amount of overtreatment, 
um, that, that is to say some people who were unnecessarily put on an antidepressant when it might have been better to offer them exercise first um, or other kinds of integrative treatments like omega-3 fatty acids or yoga um, that they might have benefited from those, uh, from those treatments. Uh, but I, I think um, the problem of undertreatment is, is a much bigger problem. Exercises can be effective in some depression patients. I mean, we all know that exercise releases endorphins, right. and endorphins make you happy, and happy people yeah. just don't kill their husbands. <laughs> like, I mean, we've all learned that from Legally Blonde, so it's kind of obvious that exercise would help depression, right? Yeah, I was about to watch that movie the other day, too. <laughs> it's such a good movie. It's my go-to happy oh movie. Oh, my gosh. If she can get into Harvard, then we can really just do anything, right? Thank including you. stalking your ex ex boyfriend. <laughs> we asked John to elaborate on when exercise could actually have a benefit to patients and when it might just not be enough. We then asked Annie, anonymous Annie, to tell us if this helped her manage her anxiety. So there have been um, over the uh, last few years there have been a number of good studies, controlled studies, randomized controlled studies. Um, that have shown that at least for mild depression, um, exercise is a very reasonable kind of, of treatment, um, either by itself or to add on to antidepressants or to, um, to psychotherapy. When people have moderate to severe depression, exercise probably would help, um, but that it's, in practical terms, it's often very difficult. Somebody says, look, I, you know, I can't even brush my teeth. No, I can't even get, you know, get out of bed. Um, you're asking me, to take a brisk walk every day mm -hmm. or to get on a treadmill, um, even if we try to start it gradually and encourage somebody, somebody's ability to follow up uh, because of the depression, because they're not even able to answer emails, they're not opening their mail anymore, they're, they're doing very, very little and unable to do too much at all. Um, it's not feasible, but for people with more mild forms of depression who are willing to give it a go, I think exercise is an excellent uh, approach. Uh, again, with more severe depression, we almost always need to use medications and or psychotherapy, um, uh, at least in addition to exercise and, and, and usually as a first step before someone is even able to, to exercise. Um, there are theories. We don't know why exercise helps. You know, in, years ago, we used to talk about endorphins and, yeah. and um, you know, the idea that the opioid system in the brain, the natural, you know, one of the natural reward um, systems in the brain um, kicks in during exercise, and that may be true. In more recent years, there's been a focus on neurogenesis, or the birth of new nerve cells in certain areas of the brain, uh, like the hippocampus, an area of the um, brain which we know is affected in, uh, in depression. Um, and we think that um, exercise um, stimulates neurogenesis, which is interesting because many antidepressants also stimulate neurogenesis, and we think that may be one of the mechanisms through which antidepressants work. So it may be that there's a common um, mechanism that antidepressants stimulate neurogenesis, exercise also stimulates neurogenesis. That might be one of the avenues through which they uh, reduce depression symptoms. So to me, it's always been a little bit intuitive that exercise helps with these sort of things. Um, you know, it is pretty common knowledge out there and is shared in a lot of self-help resources and articles about general depression and anxiety coping skills. So it's something that I knew personally helped me feel better and there was research behind that to back it up as well. Um, I see it more as an outlet for stress relief 
rather than trying to change my body to conform to a certain shape or size, um, which has been a risk for me in the past. I have done a mix of yoga, running, weightlifting, all of those at different times. I try not to force myself into a specific routine or regimen because that kind of defeats the whole point of using it for stress relief. And I would also say that whenever possible, I try to go outside rather than be in a gym. So when when you listen to commercials about antidepressants, often you hear that thoughts of suicide are a potential side effect. But isn't that the very thing that you are trying to prevent? Could you explain this? Right. So um, first, I should say that the um, there have been a number of large um, studies, community studies, looking at rates of suicide and um, the overwhelming um, evidence suggests that overall the use of antidepressants is associated with reduction in the risk of suicide, that antidepressants prevent many more suicides um, than they may cause. In the studies where antidepressants were linked um, with suicide, um, it um, they were linked with suicidal thoughts, not, not actions. So mm -hmm. the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, very appropriately has required warnings because some people start antidepressants and begin to have suicidal thoughts, um, and um, and the FDA has very appropriately wanted to include a warning about that. But in those studies, they weren't actual suicides. Fortunately, they were thinking about suicide. All of that having been said, most of us who treat people clinically do believe that some people are made worse by antidepressants, and it's very important for us to discuss that with people who are starting antidepressants. One population that um, we, we believe is particularly at risk um, for getting worse rather than getting better on antidepressants are people with bipolar disorder. So about one out of 10 people that um, come to us with a complaint of depression who have clinical depression actually have bipolar disorder. We may not have elicited that in our history. We might not have realized in speaking with them that they have bipolar disorder, and there are two reasons for that. One is that sometimes when people have manic symptoms, they're not aware of it. So unless somebody tells them, you know, what's going on, you're up at two in the morning, you're spending a lot of money, you're talking very rapidly, you're really irritable, um, they may not actually realize it as a period of mania. They may just think of it as a time of high productivity when their mood was very high and they were getting a lot done. Um, so when we take a history, somebody might not remember that five years ago they had this period of time that was a manic period because they, they might not have been aware that it was a manic period. Number two, sometimes we're treating somebody who's young. They might be 19 or 20. Um, they might have bipolar disorder, but they might not yet have ever had a manic episode. Maybe in a few years they would have had one, but, but they haven't. But what we know about people with bipolar disorder is if we treat somebody with bipolar depression with an antidepressant alone, rather than the usual treatment for bipolar disorder, which is called a mood stabilizer, that antidepressant has a high chance of making that person intensely agitated. And uh, people who have bipolar disorder and take an antidepressant often develop what's called a mixed state. A mixed state is still being very sad or down and hopeless, but having incredible energy. And um, that's a very dangerous state to be in from the standpoint of suicide, because if you're feeling sad and hopeless and suicidal, and now instead of feeling tired, you have a lot of energy and you feel very agitated, that's a state in which the risk of suicide is particularly high. And we, we think that some people 
who have committed um, suicide on antidepressants who we've seen clinically um, were probably um, thrown into a mixed state because we didn't realize they had bipolar disorder. So nowadays, we're much more likely to warn people, anyone we, we see who's being started on antidepressant, please call me right away if instead of feeling calmer and beginning to feel better on an antidepressant, you begin to feel more agitated, um, you're not sleeping, um, you're having rapid thoughts or racing thoughts, um, please call me right away and we will want to reevaluate your diagnosis and your treatment. Your hosts for this episode were Heather and Joanna. Thanks for joining us today. Dr. Albert really is a wealth of information on depression and anxiety. We hear about these disorders on almost a daily basis, but many of us don't know the different forms of depression, how doctors go about diagnosing it, or what some of the treatment options are. We got some great answers in our interview, but we have more of our conversation with John and Annie on our next episode, where we go a little deeper into what is actually happening in a depressed brain. We also talk about some of the other treatment options, such as ketamine, and what kind of impact social media has on those with depression. Visit our website, neuronyard.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. John Alpert. You can find him on Twitter at JonathanEAlpert. You can also follow us on social media at neuronyardcast to leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly. Email us at neuronyardpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.